Um, I have a few extra things to read to you this morning from what well, we'll always go take our faithful trip as we do every Sunday to the Global Prayer Guide, but this Sunday, the newsletter, some of you folks get this as individuals, we get this as a church, this is mine, uh, the, this month's newsletter from the Voice of the Martyrs. There's a beautiful prayer that has been written by the leadership of Voice of the Martyrs for those of us who support them to pray for their needs and for fellow Christians around the world. So I'm going to offer up that and conclude that with our prayer here in a few minutes. And then I'm going to read to you a very short part of an article from this newsletter about how real and how relevant this passage is this morning that we're studying, uh, spiritual warfare. I don't have to convince you anymore that there's a spiritual warfare raging in this country and over this country. But it is around the world, very, very much so. And if the Bible and history tells me anything, it's going to get hotter. Hence the relevance of this, of this passage. And a very special welcome to all of you folks out there in the several states or more that have been watching us for some time now. And a very special blessed Palm Sunday to those of you folks from around the world who have been watching for Oh, some of you better part now. We love you very much, and we are very grateful for you. Thank you for, for joining us, and we hope that by our sharing the Word of God with you, we've been helpful to you and been able to serve you in some way or another. Speaking of the Global Prayer Guide, let's go to that. <clears throat> and the nation that we should remember today and this week, always, as I always say, is the African nation of Uganda. Uh, one of my professors, Dr. Parrott, from Cedarville, if memory serves me right, he mentioned to us on numerous occasions where I think for a number of years, he and even members of his family, for a number of years would go uh, every summer to Uganda. And he had a lot of really wonderful and interesting stories about the spread of, of the faith uh, in Uganda. According to Voice of the Martyrs, uh, Uganda's situation is hostile. Uganda has the reputation of being one of the most, one of the most Christianized countries in Africa. Many churches or organizations choose it as a destination for short-term trips, as I mentioned, and mission projects due to its ease of access and welcoming atmosphere. It remains a strongly Christian nation with very high church attendance. However, Uganda's unique history makes it particularly vulnerable to the influence of Islam. During the 1970s, Uganda was ruled, of course, by that monster you remember, Idi Amin. At one point, Amin visited fellow dictator Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Gaddafi inspired him to make Uganda a member of the Organization of Islamic Countries and so began to Islamize the country. Many of the policies Amin put into place continue to influence society and government today. Uganda's parliament even recently passed Sharia banking, which gives zero interest loans to <clears throat> Islamic projects. Arab countries also continue to invest large amounts of resources into furthering Muslim interests within the country. As a result of this, radical Islam's influence has grown by more than 7% in the last three years, and many Christians within the majority Muslim border regions are facing severe persecution, especially those who convert from Islam. Despite this, evangelical churches in Uganda are trying to educate others on what is happening and rise up against the threat of Islam. Many churches are training their leaders how to evangelize Muslims and care for those who become Christians. Members within these churches in Muslim-majority areas have even become full-time caretakers for persecuted believers. Uganda is, at this time, a majority Christian country. Persecution comes from Islamists within communities, especially along the eastern, southwestern, and northern borders of the country. Christian converts from Islam face family pressure and harassment from their Muslim communities. A number of young people who converted to Christianity have been severely beaten and injured by parents or community members. Pastors and churches have been attacked, and some converts have even been killed after their faith became known. 
The children of families who leave Islam are no longer welcome at school. In some places, laws are passed to limit the spread of Christianity or to try to appropriate church land. Bibles are available in urban areas, but in most rural areas, here's a great need there. Uh, most people in rural areas do not have access or the financial means to obtain Bibles. Also in the rural areas of Uganda, um, uh, many of these areas consist of many unique tribal dialects with a large portion of the older population being illiterate. Voice of the Martyr supports the distribution of Bibles and audio Bibles. Audio Bibles are very important here. Audio Bibles are becoming very important in, in, throughout Africa. Uh, they distribute, distribute uh, printed Bibles, of course, and audible audio Bibles in areas with a heavy Muslim influence and provides assistance to believers who have been attacked, threatened, or ostracized because of their conversion to Christ. Voice of the Martyrs is also sponsoring persecution conferences in central Uganda to make Christians there more aware of what is happening and to empower churches and pastors to continue standing against Islam while caring for Christian converts from Islam. So please pray for the folks in, in Uganda in the future. Now I'm going to begin with this really wonderful prayer written by the leadership of Voice of the Martyrs and is published in this monthly newsletter. Heavenly Father God, we boldly approach your throne of grace on behalf of global Bible distribution in restricted nations and in hostile areas. We pray for the success of ministry efforts to place your word in the hands of every believer living in a difficult or dangerous place to be a Christian. We pray that roads will be open, bridges will be sound, weather will not impede progress, vessels will remain operational, and those smuggling Bibles will be undetected by any and all trying to stop them. May the power of your word bring the men, women, and children who receive it into an abiding relationship with the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ, God the Son. And may they act on the words of Scripture to become bold and faithful witnesses as they make disciples of all nations. Direct each audio, print, and children's Bible into the hands of a receptive soul. May those who do not yet believe be drawn to faith by the power of your word. May our brothers and sisters who take great risks to distribute your word remain fearless, trusting solely in you, the God whose message they are delivering. Give them great courage and strength as they carry out this crucial work. Thank you, Father God, that your word will never pass away and will always accomplish your redemptive purposes. Lord God Almighty, we also pray for our brothers and sisters, specifically in the African nation of Uganda. Thank you for their strong Christian witness and for the power of the gospel of Jesus working in that country for many years now. We pray that you will protect our brothers and sisters from the threat of Islam, from the threat of persecution. Help them to keep their freedom. And may the gospel of Jesus Christ continue to spread throughout that nation faithfully and in freedom. They love you very much, are completely dedicated to you, and work very, very hard for your kingdom. Bless them in their efforts now and always. Help us here to always be mindful of them in our prayers and as a church, and to partnership with Voice of the Martyrs and with other Christian ministries and organizations to support our brothers and sisters there in any way whatsoever that we can. We pray for the passage that we are studying this morning and for its importance in the life of every local church and in the life of every Christian believer all over this planet. Considering the times that we are in, very interesting time in history and in redemptive history at this stage in the divine plan. Please impress upon the minds and the hearts and the souls of everyone listening here, the various states and the various nations who watch and listen. Open the minds and hearts of everyone watching and listening to receive the truth of the inspired passage Spiritual warfare, one of the most important passages in all of this letter and in all of the New Testament. Help us to appropriate these truths for our lives as individuals, as families, and as local churches to fight the good fight in Jesus' name all of our lives through no matter what. To do our duty to the end and beyond until King Jesus returns 
and his kingdom is consummated, finished, and completed in this world and in this creation once and for all. And all opposition is swept away once and for all. In the sacred and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the great King, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the word of the Lord? I shouldn't close that. Our journey through Paul's inspired letter to our ancient brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Of course, this being one of the most important passages of the letter and most best known and important passages in the New Testament. The armor and weapons of the Christian soldier, the armor of God, spiritual warfare as we traditionally call it. Today, verses 12 and 13. You could entitle these two verses or a message crafted from these the truth of these two verses as know your enemy. Ephesians 6, 12 and 13. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Just to give you an example of how relevant this passage is, not only on the home front, but on all fronts uh, the world over, I'm going to give you the story of a man from Sierra Leone in Africa who was literally saved from pagan human sacrifice by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord and how real spiritual warfare the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness is in this world. Pastor Mamodiu grew up in the village of Kanatortor in, uh, I believe, Sierra Leone which was once known as a headquarters for witchcraft. Amongst other pagan gods, villagers worshipped the python, a snake. I really don't have to unpack the symbolism of that one now, do I? The gods in the trees, pagan animism, and a so-called human-like god who lived in a hut, but the hut was surrounded by demons. Every year, the gods required six human sacrifices from the persons of this community. When Mamodiu was a teenager, he was selected to be a human sacrifice. Although his father was one of the witchcraft leaders, he did not want to lose his son. <laughs> you see, their own beliefs are unsustainable. They cannot live by their own beliefs. So they fled to another village. It was there that Mamodiu heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and was freed from the spirits of evil that Paul speaks of this morning. And he became a Christian, received freedom, new life in Jesus Christ our Lord. When his family returned home about a year later, Mamodiu began telling others about Jesus. Villagers were very interested because they were terrified of the gods that they had been serving and no longer wanted to sacrifice their children. They soon decided to give up witchcraft and follow Jesus, and they appointed Momodiu as their preacher. Every Sunday, he shares what he has learned from listening to the audio Bible, the Word of God on audio. How real is that concerning spiritual warfare and the relevancy of this passage? And of course, as I said to you a few minutes before, I don't think I have to convince you of the spiritual warfare that's raging in our own culture and in and over our own country. But I know some folks may be saying, well, at least thank God we don't sacrifice our children in America. Are you sure about that? You might want to rethink that. And God Almighty will judge it. As sure as I am standing here in the flesh talking to you, He will judge it. He will. As to the passage, know your enemy, Christian warrior. 
It's actually a good passage to teach. Yes, believe it or not, on Palm Sunday, because it's the, this is the day that the great king rode triumphant into Messiah's city and performed the atoning work to set us all free, and he will come back again, but this time on the white steed, according to John in the Revelation. And with him will be his army, his conquering army, triumphant once and for all and forever. In the meanwhile, armor up, Christian soldier. Put on your armor. Take up your weapons to arms to arms. Paul gives us such an expression in the text today. Every single day that you live in your pilgrimage, which is half pilgrimage and half battleground through this world on your way to the eternal home that you will pass into, into eternity or that kingdom will come crashing in on us one day when the great king returns and set things right once and for all. Of course, we continue with, again, the most famed passage concerning spiritual warfare in the New Testament, certainly one of the most. And one of the Apostle Paul's, and he's inspired to use this metaphor, mind you, one of Paul's favorite metaphors, inspired metaphors for the Christian life, which is that of the Christian as a warrior, a Christian soldier serving the great armored warrior king of the Old Testament. Verse 12, getting into the heart of the matter. Know your enemy. Know the war that you're involved in. And then starting next week, we're going to start unpacking each individual piece of equipment, of your armor, of your uniform, of your weapons, of your kit, and how to fight this fight. Quite a loaded verse indeed. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Loaded verse indeed. So Paul now wishes to educate us. He wishes to inform us of our enemy. This is a know your enemy passage. In order to defeat them, in order to properly defend ourselves. Paul begins the verse with for, F-O-R. Paul uses the word for to explain why. To explain the reason why the Christian needs divine help, divine strength, and divine armor to defeat the devil's schemes, the devil's methodias in the Greek that I gave you last week. All of the devil's methods, which are lies, deceit, schemes, cunning. We need to seek divine help for or because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our warfare is against spirit beings. Now, do we face enemies who hate Christians and Christianity in the flesh? Obviously we do. But there is an enemy that is instigating this, that is inspiring them, that is motivating them, that is in them, through them, behind them, and all that they do, and motivating them. So in the end, behind it all, at the end of the day, as we say, ultimately, the real battle, the real war, is fought in the spirit world and against spirit beings. Everything that you see happening in the physical likely is not. There's something in, in the spiritual that's behind it, that's pushing it, that's inspiring it, that's motivating it. Oh, if we could pull back the veil, as we say, and see what is going on in the very air, the very atmosphere around us, as Paul clearly tells us in this passage. For our struggle, Paul writes, the word he uses for struggle is pale in the original Greek. Pretty strong word, a word that would resonate with everybody in the first century AD. For our pale, we translate that as struggle. It's a word used in ancient times and antiquity to describe, this is, I found this kind of whimsical, but interesting. It was used many times to describe a wrestling match in the athletic world. And if you know anything about um, ancient sports or athletics in the ancient world, oh my, was it knocked down drag out. Even more so than, far more so at times than what we have now. Wrestling matches were a no-holds-barred affair, sometimes or oftentimes in the ancient world. And all athletes, they could be seriously injured, even die competing in some of these competitions. So this word, this struggle, this pile. Originally, it described a wrestling match in the athletic world, but also it came to mean very serious hand-to-hand -hand combat in the gladiatorial games, or many times it was used in reference to warfare and to soldiers. And I found it interesting that this is the only time in the New Testament that the Spirit of God inspired an apostolic writer to use this word. This word, uh, noun, was very, very common in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's generation, as I told you. 
And by the way, you can go see this word written on inscriptions in Ephesus to this day. This word has been found on numerous uh, inscriptions from archaeological digs in Ephesus and around the Mediterranean world. Um, and yes, again, you can, you can go to Ephesus as a tourist, visit the archaeological ruins, some of the finest from the ancient world to this day, and see this word as they used it in their culture. So again, this world's been found there and elsewhere in the ancient world to reference champion wrestlers, particularly champion wrestlers being awarded or rewarded for their efforts, for their knockdown, drag-out fights and struggles and matches. And also it came to refer to Greco-Roman soldiers, even Roman soldiers by the first century, being awarded or rewarded, or as we would say, decorated for valor on the battlefield or for fighting prowess in battle. And so writes Paul, and so we struggle, we pile, we fight, hand-to-hand matches and struggles and single combats as Christian soldiers against our spiritual enemies, against demons, against fallen angels, against evil spirits. That is a very sobering thought, a very daunting thought. Many find it frightening. And if you take all of, if you really meditate upon these passages and upon these truths, he's really hammering us with here. If you think all of this out logically, reasonably, and rationally, which we should, you're going to come to this question eventually. Will we be decorated or rewarded? He's calling you that type of a wrestler, that type of a gladiator, that type of a soldier who engages in that type of combat. If they were awarded or rewarded, will not you? As a Christian soldier? Engaged in spiritual combat, will there come a time when we may be decorated or rewarded by the King of Kings for our fighting achievements on the battlefield against our enemy? I think that's a perfectly reasonable conclusion. The New Testament does tell us on several occasions there will be a rewards day when the King returns. And we will see rewards or the lack thereof as we enter His kingdom. Decoration day for the Christian soldier is coming. Are you going to get any medals pinned on you? for warfare and triumph against the enemy in the trenches or on the battlefield of this life? Pretty sobering question now, isn't it? This may all, uh, Another reason why, also why Paul may have been inspired to use this word, used both for wrestlers and soldiers, is I found this interesting in doing my background work in history, uh, with the, the first believers, our brothers and sisters in Ephesus who first received this letter in the first century. There was a tradition in the ancient world at this time that there was a certain advantage to be gained for a trained soldier if he had previously had some sort of training as a wrestler. We find this in the writings of the historian and philosopher Plutarch. He says that it was very common for uh, officers and non-commissioned officers to try to recruit men who had experience as a wrestler or training as a wrestler. So add the very formidable strict discipline and training and weapons and armor of a Roman soldier to a man who has previous experience as a wrestler, and you are going to have a very formidable soldier on the battlefield indeed. This is all what Paul has in mind. And he's comparing all of that to us and to warfare in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual world. The image is a very close, very difficult, very dangerous, very exhausting hand-to-hand combat. The war of his day. As they fight, you fight, brothers and sisters, he is saying. It's a very sobering concept and thought. And according to Paul, this is how we fight our spiritual enemies. It's a very real war. A very real palais. A very real struggle. Very real combat. We fight a spiritual war. That is what the Greeks and the Romans would call a pankration. And a pankration is what you and I would call in English an all-out fight. Or if I may use some common vernacular slang, a real knock-down, drag-out, no-holds-barred fight. That's what the man is describing. Pankration. A melee. A free-for-all. This is a really vicious fight. Armor up. Christian soldier, like it or not, 
you're enlisted in the army of the king and this is what you are going to face. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. A theologian by the name of Michael Gudorf, he wrote a very interesting article on this passage in Ephesians for a theological journal some years ago. Let me read to you a comment he made. Describing the battle being waged with the word pale or struggle in verse 12, this helps to invoke in the reader's mind a concept of not only taking a stand, but of taking a stand of fighting against a very cunning opponent in a close quarter struggle. While the armor and weapons described in verses 10 to 17 serve the purpose of furthering pressing upon the reader's mind the danger, the real dangerousness of this battle and of this struggle being waged, end quote. This is a very real fight. Soldiers fight. Soldiers are wounded. Soldiers suffer great hardship and danger. Soldiers are maimed. Soldiers are killed. Can Christian soldiers be wounded or maimed in spiritual warfare? Absolutely. Therefore, armor up and be on your guard. Can Christian soldiers be killed in this fight? Well, you cannot lose your eternal life. There's no killing that. But can you use your physical life, your mortal life in this mortal body in spiritual warfare that manifests itself in the physical in this world? Absolutely. It's happening right now even as I speak. How many times does warfare in the spiritual world become physical? The wars that we encounter in history. Not to mention persecution. How many Christian soldiers have died, have given the last full measure of devotion, as we say, have been martyred for the cause, for the kingdom of Christ, on the battlefield of this world? In fact, what does this very organization and others tell us? From the year 1900 to this present hour, more Christians have died for the name of Jesus Christ than ever before in the previous 2,000 years of the Christian church. And it's getting hotter. It's not going away. Very real spiritual warfare, which will manifest itself in the physical. Hence the need for the full armor of God and the Lord Himself as we unpack that truth last week. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself is the only true real source for this spiritual power, for this spiritual armor, for the strength to wage this battle successfully for Christian believers. And remember, the real struggle according to Paul, no matter what we face in the physical world, remember, something's going on in the spirit world that causes all of this, or motivates or inspires this. Now, I don't want to lay everything at the blame of evil spirits, because human beings are very, very evil and fallen, all on our own. All on our own. Remember the old comic that used to say in his routine, the devil made me do it? Well, there is true. There is a lot of that. The sacred scripture tells us that we are terribly evil all on our own. But yes, there is a lot of motivation out there from the evil one and his army, his troops, the cosmic battle. Hence, Christians need the full armor of God. Our real struggle ultimately at the end of the day, and let me use that expression again, pardon me, is not against flesh and blood human beings. This strongly underlies the spiritual nature, ultimately, of this warfare. So Paul is here, he's pulling back the veil, as we say. He's exposing them. He's removing the cover. He's blowing their camouflage, if I may use that expression. He's exposing and unmasking and pulling away the cover from the ultimate source of many of the evils in this world that Christians will face in this world. This struggle, which is behind any and all physical opposition, there is spiritual spiritual influence. Now he tells us this. This is our enemy. Know your enemy. Who are we really fighting against? Who's really commanding the attacks against Christianity in this world? Hostility against Western civilization, which was built on the Judeo-Christian ethos in this world. Against the rulers, he says, against the rulers, against the powers. You can also translate that as authorities. Against the rulers, against the authorities or powers, against the world forces of this darkness, darkness in this age, against the spiritual forces of wickedness or evil in the heavenly places. There's another quite loaded verse and statement, isn't it? 
Know your enemy. So Paul will now teach us about who our enemy is. He will clarify here that the enemy is not merely one powerful spiritual being. That is Satan, the evil one himself. Oh, he is there. But you're not just dealing with him. You're dealing with all the evil spirits that fell with him in their original rebellion against God in the primordial past, in the distant past, who were banished from heaven, from the personal dwelling place of God, and banished to the earth, to other places in this creation. Remember, there were more of them. Some Bible scholars believe he may have taken a third of the angels in heaven in rebellion with him. We're facing an entire army with a rank, an infrastructure, a command structure. We do not face merely one, rather we face a whole range of evil spiritual forces, an army, a fraudulent kingdom, a usurping kingdom, many spirit enemies of differing rank, authority, abilities, and objectives even, a real command structure. Now the first two type of spiritual beings that Paul mentions here are the rulers, arche. Arche means first, uh, number one, a head or leader or ruler. And the powers or authorities, exousia, a very strong word for authority, authority with power behind it. The rulers or authorities, these obviously or what we could call officers or non-commissioned officers in the army of the enemy. Spirit beings of rank and authority in the forces of Satan's army. And these incidentally are two of Paul's most common terms for demonic spirits. He uses these terms in other letters. He uses these terms two times, if you've noticed already in this letter, back in chapter 121 and chapter 3, verse 10. The third term that Paul gives us is the world forces. In the original Greek, <laughs> it is a very long, difficult to pronounce compound word that we translate into world forces, the world forces of darkness. And this is a very unique term. It's another term that Paul uses that's found nowhere else in the New Testament. In fact, this is the earliest known appearance of this word anywhere in Koine Greek, which gives some scholars pause to ask, did Paul coin this term? Did the Spirit of God inspire him to actually invent this word? Who knows? Maybe he did, maybe not. It is possible that he did use a new word or a new expression that was being coined that appeared both in Greco-Roman mythology, folklore, and astrology, and believe it or not, in Jewish folklore and astrology at this time. Paul took the word, uh, as he would say, captive for Christ, as he himself would say in describing the spiritual war that we're involved in. In fact, this word doesn't appear anywhere again until the 2nd century A.D. when it was starting to become popular in writings at the time with Jews, Greeks, and Romans. So these spirits were believed even by the pagans. Even the pagans got this right. They were well aware of the influence and existence of evil spiritual forces in this world. Even they believed that there were evil spirits who could directly attack and influence people and events on the earth. Paul here would be telling the former pagans, Ephesian believers and other pagans and us, of course, that pagan idolatry in any way, shape, or form is animated and influenced by these demonic spirits. They're behind this. They're responsible for this. Know your enemy. Be on your guard. Know this. We're to know it as well. I gave you a frightening example. This is also happening right here. The occult has always been around. And people have always been seduced by the occult. But in numerous generations, past few generations, decades, as United States culture has left its roots and it's left its Christian influence, the rise of the black arts, the occult, has been on the rise in America in a frightening way. And hence you see what's happening to the country, happening to the, to the culture. Right? Hence, spiritual warfare in this country. There's also examples in history. I don't want to keep you over long with this. But if you know what to look for, if you know what to watch for, if you know what to listen for, crack open a history book and you will see the influence of warfare in the spiritual world on the physical world. 
you will see leaders, you will see movements, you will see governments that have most certainly been inspired by the occult and by evil. You'll see this as late as the Second World War. You'll see this in communism, Marxism. Uh, Brother Charles, I think a, year, a couple of years ago, he gave me a book written by Richard Vornbrand himself, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, who you know spent many years tortured in a communist Romanian prison. And this book is called uh, Satan and Marx, or Satan and Marxism, something like that, is in the title. And he makes a very, very compelling case that Karl Marx, go figure, one of the founders of one of the greatest evils ever foisted upon this world, that he was a blatant Satanist into the occult. And what has he released upon this world but one of the most awful evils ever released in this world, responsible for probably the deaths of at least 120 to 150 million people? How's that for spiritual warfare manifesting itself in the physical in this world? Now when Paul says these powers are of this darkness, he means the dark forces that are at work in this world right now before judgment day for them comes in this period of redemptive history, in this period of history according to the divine plan. And he is saying obviously that these so-called world powers or powers at work throughout this world behind the scenes, they are thoroughly evil. They are of the kingdom of darkness destined for judgment. They belong to the condemned realm of spiritual darkness. Darkness is, of course, what you and I have been rescued from. Praise God. Darkness is the realm that believers are rescued from by Christ, the greatest of all liberators. By divine plan. That is a realm to which we as believers no longer belong, but now we as believers must stand against it and must stand against them. The fourth and final term, know your enemy, that Paul uses is something of a comprehensive or, or broad term. Spiritual forces of wickedness or the spirits of the forces of evil. You could also translate this as pneumaticatos panareas. This would perhaps be best understood, again, as a comprehensive term. He's talking about all of the classes of hostile spirit beings. This expression is believed by many New Testament uh, Greek scholars as a sort of summarization of all the previous spirit beings that Paul has written about in his other letters and that he mentions here, demon spirits, encompassing any and all forms of dark spirits. He denounces them and condemns them blatantly as evil and under the sentence of God's final judgment. They and all who follow them. Now in the heavenly places, some folks are bothered by that. What do you mean the heavenly places? They're in heaven? How can they be in heaven? We thought they were banished from heaven. We thought they were exiled from heaven. Yes, they are. Let me uh, clarify for you what Paul means by the heavenly places. It's really quite simple. The expression in Greek is iporanois, from the root word oranos. Now, oranos can mean several things. Oranos can mean literally the sky that you look at when you step outside and look up at the clouds and the rain. It can also mean, some scholars believe, the night sky as well. Or the sky, to, according to the ancients, that's beyond the sky. What you and I would call space. And oranos was a word that in time came to mean simply Heaven for Jews and for Christians. That is, heaven, the personal dwelling place outside of this creation where God dwells, where the holy angels dwell, where the righteous dead go when they die. So when Paul means they move about in the heavenly places, he doesn't mean heaven as in the dwelling place of God. He means heaven as in the sky, the atmosphere, the very air around us of this world as we know it. This earth as we know it. That's where they inhabit the world. That's where they move about. That's where much of this warfare is engaged in, fought. It's all around us. In the atmosphere, all around us, all around the earth. That's the world of spiritual reality. And it's a very, very real world. Final verse for the day. Therefore, because of all of this, because they are very real and they are very dangerous and they are not going away until the King of Kings returns. Therefore, take up, as he mentioned earlier in the passage when we began last week or so, 
Therefore, take up, but it's a different expression. It's interesting. It's an emergency expression. Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, in the evil time that you will face. And having done everything or having prepared for everything, stand firm, fight, resist. That's what he's saying. It's a very active, it's a very important get in this fight type of command and type of exhortation. It's also something of a repeat, as I told you, of what he gave us in verses 10 to 12. Why does Paul repeat himself? For the very reason that almost every other biblical author repeats themselves. For emphasis. This is extremely important, of tremendous importance, and so he hammers the truth home into us by simple repetition. Since Christian believer in this life, you will continue to live in this world until you step into eternity or until eternity comes to us. During this time, this present evil age, as Paul would say, we will face these enemies. We will fight against all of the cunning and powerful attacks of these various hostile spirits. We are expected to stand against them. We are expected to resist them. We are expected to defeat them. And yes, we are expected to drive them away, drive them off while advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They're not to be invading our territory. We are to be invading their territory. That's the problem we have in the United States of America. We have been cowardly and slothful and complacent in this fight, and we have allowed them to invade our territory. We have been told by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to invade their territory. No more hovering on the defensive. Yes, we are to defend our families and ourselves personally as individuals, he mostly means here, but as the church of Jesus Christ in this world, we are to be advancing the kingdom on the attack, not hovering and cowering in some weak and timid defense. It's a very powerful passage that Paul is teaching here. More powerful in the Greek than even into the English. That's why I've got to hammer the passion here home to you. Tremendous importance. We are expected to defeat them, to advance the kingdom of Jesus as well as defend the kingdom of Jesus. We are to be out there setting people free by advancing the kingdom, giving them to Jesus, the greatest liberator and deliverer of all, to set them free from the spiritual enemy who oppresses them. Spiritual freedom by way of Christ. Therefore, we must take up the full armor, the panoplia, from which we get the English word panoply. What he means by full armor, panoply, is, again, if you remember from last week, from head to foot. The whole, complete, serviceable set of armor and weapons that Paul's going to go on to describe and unpack for us. This armor that comes from God and only from God, this battle which must be fought in the might of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, His strength and His might. We are to depend completely on the power of God and of Christ. If you ever wage a successful combat, you ever fight a successful campaign, you ever want to wage a successful war, mount a successful resistance, defense, attack, or defense, it all means, according to Paul, to draw upon the resources that only God the Almighty, in particular God the Son, provides. Now, when Paul writes, take up in verse 13, I found this very interesting in the original language. It's kind of weak in the English. It's very strong in the Greek. Take up in the Greek is chanalabete. And this verb appears frequently in ancient literature. It's something of a formal or common military term. That means take up arms. Do you remember the old expression... Um, in uh, military circles from centuries past, to arms, to arms. That's precisely what this means. That is precisely the type of expression that Paul is saying here. He's saying, wake up, alert, to arms, to arms, take up arms, get in the fight. It's an emergency command. He's not just saying, oh, take up arms. No, it's to arms. Get in your ranks. Get in the fight. That's what he's saying. It's a very powerful, very powerful statement. Take up weapons, two arms, prepare for battle. Why? Having done everything, that is to say, having done everything in order to get ready, to be prepared, to stand firm. That's the goal. 
for believers to take their stand. He uses the same word that I unpacked for you last week. To take your stand or to stand firm is stenai in the Greek. It is something of a quasi, if not a formal, military tone. The term, pardon me, of the first century A.D. And it is not only defensive, it is an offensive word. On guard. Two arms. Be ready to hold the line and not budge an inch or be ready to attack. Whichever the commander requires. Stenai. Be ready to defend. Give no ground. Be ready to advance. Be ready to attack. And dare I mention this. Perhaps even at times in the spiritual world as well as the physical world that the best defense is a good offense. My favorite generals from history were always the very aggressive ones. I think Paul's being aggressive here as well. Now, what about the statement Paul makes that you may be able to resist in the evil day or the evil time? The word he uses for resist means fight. That you may be able to fight and to fight well in the evil time or the evil day. That's a very interesting thing to say. What does he mean by that? First of all, it's, it's really quite simple. Paul is saying that he, he fully assumes. He fully assumes, he presumes, he anticipates, he predicts. Demonic assaults coming against us as taking place at an evil day or at an evil time. That is, any time that you lock horns with evil, it's an evil day. It's an evil time that you're fighting them. So Paul most probably is warning of rough times of combat ahead for us all. He's talking about times of trial. He's talking about times of hardship. He's talking about periods of hostility. He's talking about temptation. Times of temptation, severe temptation even, that we will all face. He's talking about times when we must confront and stand against the evils that are all around us. He is speaking of persecution. And remember, why is this so important? Why is he hammering us with this so? Because unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns this afternoon or this evening, you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives in this knock-down, drag-out fight against the spirit world. It's not going to end for us until we go home in the passage we call mortal death. It is not going to end, ultimately, until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords Himself personally and bodily returns to this planet to wrap it all up once and for all according to the divine plan. So the resolution of this cosmic fight for us is future. Unless it should happen today. Only when God personally intervenes once and for all will all of the evil rebellious powers all around us be brought under judgment at the return of Christ. Until that time, Satan and his forces, they will plot, they will attack, they will strategize. They will strategize and scheme and plan how they can attempt to oppose Christ's kingdom in this world how they can try to oppose and thwart God's redemptive plan moving throughout this world, how they can attack and slander and denigrate and tear down the church, and how they can harass individual Christian believers. And so an evil day experience that Paul speaks of, it can come at various times. It can come at any time. It can come many times throughout the lives of Christians and God's redeemed people. When these powers of darkness ply their trade, they ply their methods, they ply their strategies in efforts to cause believers to fall or to fail. So in conclusion, let me read to you a comment from Brother Clinton Arnold in his most excellent commentary. He writes, Preparation for this battle, according to Paul, does not take place once it begins but is to take place well in advance. We are to be ready to fight well before the fighting starts. Paul indicates that a significant investment of time and effort must be expended in becoming well prepared for the attacks that are inevitable. Paul is expressing the idea of making all necessary preparations before the struggle actually ensues. Very important. 
In other words, because of the certainty that believers will face concerted demonic attack at various times throughout their lives in this present age, it is absolutely imperative to grow in a deeper knowledge of God's gifts. These weapons, this armor that He and He alone can give us and to cultivate the practices essential to dependence on the unsurpassed power of God, of Christ. The goal of the preparation is to stand, to fight. That's not passive. That's very active. Stand I to keep from falling back, to keep from retreating, to keep from falling into sin and to attack to advance on enemy territory, to bring the gospel, the good news of deliverance in Jesus Christ the Savior to all those who are oppressed by the enemy. End quote. Next week we'll resume. Oh, pardon me. Next week is Easter. Next week we will celebrate the victory of the great king himself by an Easter message given by Brother Dan. Then the week after Easter, we'll come back to the battlefield. And we'll resume with verse 14, when Paul actually begins unpacking these individual pieces of armor and weapons that you and I are expected to fight with. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this oh-so-important passage. Keep us keenly aware of the battle that's raging around us. It's not difficult these days but help us to be armored up and prepared and in proper training as we should be. To fight at a moment's notice, to be spiritual minute man, as we would say in this country, that's precisely what our elder brother is teaching us here. Thank you for this message to help people to accomplish great things for the great king and to be decorated on that great decoration day but to be prepared to defend themselves properly and others around them. And may each and every person who hears this message adequately protect and defend themselves and others, and may they all be richly rewarded by King Jesus on the day when all Christian soldiers are recognized for the valor of their battles in this life and this world. In the blessed and holy name of King Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing number...